Hello and welcome to another episode of the Indie Alternative Podcast. It's me, Chris. On this episode, we're going back to Britpop as I'm joined by writer Jane Savage. Jane Savage is not only a writer, but she was the co-founder and head of public relations for the company Savage and Best. And Jane is wildly credited as being one of the main instigators of the Britpop musical movement and represented so many of the bands that you would associate with that era. Jane talks a bit about her first book, Lunch with the Wild Frontiers, which came out in 2019, but also talks a lot about her upcoming book, Here They Come With Their Makeup On, which explores Suede's comeback album coming up and all the circumstances surrounding that album. Um, It's a really fascinating read, and I've put links to both those books in the show notes. Just before we hit the interview, here's a quick reminder of all the ways you can support the podcast. You can follow me on social media, and all those links are in the show notes. If you'd like to buy me a virtual coffee, you can do that as well. And links to that coffee donation site is in the show notes. And thirdly, reviewing, rating, and following the podcast is the best way for me to get to new listeners. So if you haven't done any of that, if you could take five minutes out of your day to do that, would be fantastic, thank you. So this is basically an unedited conversation with Jane because there was so much good stuff. Um, I better stop waffling and play it. So uh, here's the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Jane Savage. How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, whereabouts are you? I'm in Crouch End in North London. Um, I don't know if you know that area, but um, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm trying to describe it, really. I mean, I always say it's close to Hampstead and Highgate, but that's just me boasting it's near somewhere with very green space. It's a bit further away than that, but it's nice. It's like a village in London, really. Yeah, so you've been busy uh, writing uh, throughout the sort of sort of pandemic time, but have you found it been quite, uh, obviously it's been restrictive for anybody, but for a writer it must have been business as usual, I'm guessing. I guess so, yeah. I mean, I've obviously got a second book coming out in April, and um, so I'm trying to think when I started writing this second book, probably right at the end of 2020, so halfway through the pandemic, but I've kind of been planning it for ages. It's It's kind of... A follow-up to the first one. I'm trying to. I'm trying to write um, a definitive '90s trilogy. That's my kind of, you know, sort of, uh, of that era. And yeah. So the first lunch with the Wild Frontiers was kind of my um, uh, attempt to pretend that I invented Britpop accidentally by yeah. representing bands around at the time. And this one is kind of like a microscopic um, uh, sort of analysis of um, one record in particular, Suede's coming up album, which I think is the greatest comeback record ever because. Well, for lots of reasons, but um, one of them being that Oasis, Blur, and Pulp sprang up, you know, whilst they were whilst they were dismembering themselves, basically. So I thought I wanted to talk about that, but it's also got lots of other stories, um, which are kind of around that era. So you know, parties in Paris, and uh, and then my encounters with George Michael. So it's kind of like it's um it's a follow up to that to that first one, which which was mainly lots of stories around Britpop, and then there'll be a third one with no lockdown at all, which I've started, um, which is kind of um, um, going to be, I mean, it might it'll probably end with me being invited to the House of Commons to meet Peter Mandelson uh, when he wanted to talk about um, Brit, all the Brit pop stars being perfect for their support of Tony Blair, basically. So that's yeah. kind of like, that's kind of where that went from. I mean, this is obviously right up my street in terms of the uh, seasons one to three of Back to Britpop, the podcast where I um, delved into my own sort of uh, record collection over the first lockdown and rediscovered a lot of artists and, you know, Enemy and uh, Melody Maker, you know, cover cassettes and things like that. And it's been a fascinating journey. But, I mean, 
you've worked with so many um, influential and um, well, I say big names in terms of that that indie alternative Britpop era. But I mean, in terms of bef- before we get there, what kind of your your um, your first forays into that was like looking into uh, not managing bands, but just promoting bands as well. Well, I, I mean, I'm still a publicist these days, but I'm mm. you know I describe my passport as writer and publicist rather than just um, publicist. So obviously. I mean, I was, I was at university doing a degree in philosophy. I mean, if you want to know about my journey, as it were. And, um, and, uh, and I was in a band and I came to London with the manager of the band um, to surprise his girlfriend who had a, a, a PR company yeah. called, ten, called 10 Times Better. And um, we crawled through the window to surprise her. She was annoyed because she wasn't expecting to see anybody. Initially, she thought I was Dave Gahan of Depeche Mode so I had short hair and I didn't look anything like him. And she, when she was annoyed with me, she said, oh, could you just type this, this, um, this, writing, this press release up? And it was something in your handwritten. So I went to the typewriter, looked at it. It was an awful, it was terrible writing. Put my own interpretation of it, gave it to her. She read it and said, wow, how on earth did you do that? I said, well, what did it was? It was to make it much better. So she had a dream that night that she was going to work with me. And so she rang me and said, would I work with her? And I said, only if you sack everybody that you're, you're, that you're working with. So she said, okay. <laughs> And she she set up a PR business with me called um, Mel Bell Publicity, and we did Gay Bikes on Acid and the Rhythm Sisters and Daniel Dax, uh, a record label called Homestead Records with some amazing stuff on it, like uh, Big Dipper and um, Soul Asylum and people like that. Um, then I did, we did Green on Red and all that New American Invasion. Yeah. Um, then I got a job at Virgin Records, just because I think um, Virgin must have run the NME, and I was recommended as a you know publicist. And I started doing Roy Orbison's press, which is obviously incredibly way out of my league. But I just, you know, he was amazing and um, hung out with him for about the six to eight weeks at the end of his life. And then he died whilst I was looking after him, which was horribly tragic because he was such a wonderful artist. Mm. Um, and then this was at the end of the, right at the end, this is 1990, basically. And um, then I kind of, I left the I left Virgin to write poetry because I didn't want to, you know, I, just, I didn't like being handed bands that had been um, just handed down to me, sort of, you know, do press for this. If I was ever going to do it again, I'd only do bands that I loved because I couldn't see the point in just lying about, you know, artists. So I quit. Yeah. And John Best had quit Virgin just prior to that. And he ran me and said, you know, you said you'd never do press again. I've just been handed the contract with the Pixies and the Cocteau Twins. What do you think about that? So I said, <laughs> OK. So obviously, if I was ever going to start work again, it was for those two bands. In fact, the whole of 4AD. And at that time, you know, 1990, um, we had a, me and John had a company and um, I found this band called Curve, who had a great, um, you know, and I got them for loads of press. And then one week, we had the cover of every single music magazine with a different band, The Farm, The Pixies, The Cocteau Twins, Dead Can Dance um, and Curve, you know, all on the cover of every single music paper. So I was either getting quite good or, or just being very good at being at the right place at the right time. Mm. And I also, sorry if I'm rambling on, by the way. But, no, um, carry on. It's great. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of, I know, I also made, um, I was doing a few movements around that time as well, like shoegazing. And I noticed that um, if you, if you had a band and you weren't really getting anywhere, if you just put them together with other bands, journalists used to think, well, there must be, there's something going on here, isn't there? You know, and I noticed that with Green on Red, who got more press if they were putting an article with the New American Revolution. And I was doing, when I was in Gay Bikes and Acid, I noticed that 
if I put them in with Popolite itself and other bands, they'd be part of the new Grebo revolution. Yeah. And same with shoegazing, because we were doing Moose and Lush and all those bands at the same time. And kind of, um, out of all that, there came this thing called the Camden scene, which was all the bands that used to come to our office to be interviewed in the pub down the road, which was the Good Mixer. And the Camden scene became the Britpop scene. But the Britpop scene, this is where I say I accidentally invented Britpop, it's because apart from the fact we sent all the bands down this horrible pub down the road, which has now been spruced up, by the way, um, <laughs> to do all their interviews and everything with the sticky feet and et cetera. Yeah. Um, I also, when I was in Virgin, I remember doing a band and being they, the managing director said, they're flying in next week. Can you fill a day of interviews for them? And I thought I was 23 or something. I thought, oh, God, the pressure. You know, yeah. can, I, can, I, can I actually, I mean, I'm sure people have that all the time now when you have to organise a press conference. Do you think, will anybody come? But then, but to fill a whole day for an unknown band who are flying in, the pressure was, I remembered that pressure. And I thought when I left, I don't want to do American bands ever again. Not because I was anti-American, but because of that, you know, yeah. maybe I was lazy or something. So when we were off of the Smashing Pumpkins, I said no, um, you know, at that time, even though, you know, I love their songs, but they, I would never have ever considered doing them because I knew the manager would ring up and say, fill their day, please. So yeah, because yeah. of that, we never did American bands. We ended up with this really, sort of like media-friendly roster who live around the corner and they'd bring up and say, can we interview one of your bands? Yeah, just be here in five minutes. You know, they're not on a plane in, in two weeks. They're actually around the corner. And yeah. I think because of that, it became this marriage of convenience. All those bands got lots of press. It was just convenient for everybody. And they're all British. I mean, describe in your words kind of what you felt was happening at the time, because obviously I remember it being a teenager and it could probably something a little bit different to you exciting and just diverse and everything else but did you have the feeling that there was something like a movement or like a it's really difficult to know what you're living through at the time because I was young I wasn't a teenager but I was you know in my 20s so in my late 20s so I think all of us were you know we had a small office became bigger and bigger until we had 10 people no one really had a steady boyfriend or girlfriend. No one went home at night. We stayed in the office drinking and watching our bands on the, you know, on, on TF, TFI Friday was called. And, and, yeah. um, and if you if you weren't at Top of the Pops, I mean, I had five bands on one week, you know, just you know, on the show. It's like yeah. the Cranberries and Pulp and Suede and Elastica. Um, so we often went to Top of the Pops on a Wednesday and then TFI Friday on a Friday. Um, but we often didn't want to go home. If we weren't going to a gig, or well, we went to a gig in Camden, we came back to the office to party. And there aren't many people that do that these days, I don't think. Because uh, well, the House of Commons. House of Commons, Because <laughs> <laughs> it's not so much fun, I guess. You know, I mean, maybe it is, you know, but um, it might have been so partly to do with that. It was great music, obviously. I mean, it was ludicrous as well, because the, ver- the Verve, or, or Verve as they were called then, before they had to change their name, because it clashed with the jazz label of the same name. We were managing them at the time. And Richard used to come into the office, you know, often without shoes on, you know, but but and just hang around, you know, and everyone. So there were bands in our in our offices because they were the same age as us. They'd rather go to, to hang around with us because we didn't have a financial sort of um, um hand in there, you know, sort of uh, their affairs really. We were yeah. a record. We were the same age. We we liked all the same things. And the Vercott called, you know, a Camden band, part of the Camden scene, even though they're from Wigan. So that was, you know, it's ludicrous. Did you? How did you approach bands? I mean, uh, were they looking for you, or was it the other way around? Did you have a kind of like a an antenna that instinctively knew what, no, what where the quality I think, was? 
I think, um, I mean, we were we were a cool company. I mean, Savage Invest is a good, it's handy that my name was Savage and John's name was Best. You know, that's quite a cool, that sounds like a made up name, even if it's uh, two, two surnames. Yeah. You know? We didn't even think about that. And um, did we look for bands? Well, we were out every night, but it all changed when we saw Suede and Suede, um, you know, we started doing them from very early on. And when they were on the cover of Melder Maker before the first single came out, which was really a last minute decision by Steve Sutherland to put them on rather than EMF, I think, you know, it was like a, a composite thing. Yeah. But a week before their record came out and that was kind of like, that just changed everything, not just for Sway, for us as well. Because the next day we got inundated with people. People wanted to know about the phenomenon of the band getting on the cover of a, a, a magazine before they released a record as much as they wanted to know about the band themselves. So, you know, obviously a few years later, there was articles about us as a company, which, you know, this is not, which is not, great because you're not meant to be the story now it's fine because i can all look back and i'm writing books about it but yeah. then i'm sure that maybe jarvis and brett were saying what's going on now <laughs> were these people uh aware of their own kind of uh legacy do you think at the time i mean you've got we just talk about the bands that you know if you mentioned the verve suede pulp and ultrasound echo belly uh, sixty foot dolls, cooler shaker. I mean, all the all the names. Did, did you think they had any idea what was going on? Well, some of them came later, obviously, and knew what was happening. On, I thought some of them was possibly were more interested in the outcome than um, you know what what it took to get there. If you know what yes, I mean, I, yes. I, I don't want to name names. It's not fair. But you, I did. I got the feeling that some people were careerists. You know, and realised that if they were associated with Savage and Best, then that would mean that they became famous and they could make a living out of it. I have no problem with people being really, really on my case, ringing me every day and saying what is going on, because they just they just want to they don't want to have a proper job, if you know what I mean. Or like, you know, they, they, if they want they want to follow their passion, then it's very important for them to be on. You know, if someone can affect their career and make them play the guitar for an extra ten years, why not? You know turn up at my house at midnight and say what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, so I can't name names about the people that I thought were trying too hard for the wrong reasons, but certainly the ones that you think were, weren't careerist, they definitely weren't. I mean, you know, I mean, Brett might have been really interested in, um, in you know, um, his career, but I thought he was a genius songwriter and deserved... You know, the funny thing about Sway is when I took them on, I fell in love with that band so much by watching them live and particularly falling in love with a song called Pantomime Horse, that, um, that I um, I made them famous as if I was making myself famous. So I kind of wish it was like, almost like that thing, by, you know, that thing behind the curtain or whatever. I actually imagined that I was the singer of this band and I could right. set them on the course to do all these interviews and I wouldn't get famous myself. So that was amazing because I didn't want to be, but I could just, I, it was almost like I could play with it really. The way you write is is really interesting and it's it flows very nicely. And there's so much of you in there that uh, and it, that is almost as interesting as the artist itself. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Funny enough, in the in the new book, I've got this sort of uh, this description at the start of the book, where I say, you know, what what the book is about, because it's ostensibly about bands I've represented, records, etc. And I put these asterisks, and then if you look at the bottom of the page, the asterisk says may contain may contain traces of me, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of like. An old trick I used to do in the, in the, when I used to write press releases and some of them were like five pages long because I just, I thought, you know, that's, that was a fun thing to do rather than just the usual drab stuff you, you read through now. Um, I put an asterisk and go, um, suede, comma, the best band in the world and an asterisk. 
and then people read the five pages <laughs> and then get to the asterisk at the end and go um uh, elect true true <laughs> just like <laughs> that's what they get to, you know, to the extreme, there must be some sort of a little aside here maybe they're not true <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. that and I, I do write very honestly and um you know, I try and, I mean, they, they try and, I try and be funny and people do laugh, you know, a lot when they read my, my prose, I think. Yeah, there's there's so much humour in, in what I've read so far. And um, I wanted to ask, in terms of like Lunch with the Wild Frontiers, which was the first book, which came out in 20, uh, nine, uh, 2019, I, I think, is that right? <laughs> what was the catalyst for that then because obviously you've you've had these stories and this um this career was there some one particular thing that made you think that this was something that you would like to put into well, writing well, two things one was i wrote uh, i kept telling this story to everybody about roy Orbison, um which was about introducing him to nick kent and him loving nick kent and wanting nick kent to write his biography and then roy dying before we could tell him and i never told nick and then i begin to this is going to sound so like name dropping you know, meeting Joe Strummer at Damien Hurst's house down in Devon and me and Joe getting drunk together and Joe loving Wilson and loving Nick Kent saying, you've got to tell Nick Kent that that Roy wanted him to write a book about his life. And I said, I don't know, I can't do that. He goes, well, where's he gone? He's gone to Paris uh, with his wife and child. Let's call him. So then Joe, you know, gets the house phone and tries to call, you know, Monsieur Kent, Monsieur Kent, you know, or, or just takes for hours and hours until he gives up and falls asleep. And then a few years later, I go to the to um, the uh, Brat Awards, where the enemy are giving an award to Nick Kent and Penny Smith for lifetime achievement. And I think I must tell Nick this story 15 years ago that we met and, and never told uh, him that Roy wanted him to write his biography of his life. And I tracked him down where he was holding court with all this, you know, with everybody around drinking. I said, Nick, I've seen you for 15 years. I introduced you to Roy Orbison and he wanted you to write a story about his life. I never told you. I'm so sorry I never told you, um, but I'm telling you now. And he went, cheers. <laughs> and that was all he said, right? And, and so that's why you know that story is true because it hasn't got like a gigantic ending. <laughs> yeah. And I told people that story, and they said, "You've got to write that down and make a story out of it." So that was the first story I wrote, and it was kind of there. And then I started writing more, and then I I ran every day, and I I um, had a really bad running injury. I couldn't couldn't move for six months. You know, I couldn't I could I could barely walk. So I just stuck stuck with the computer. I thought I'll write all these things down. So I just wrote all these stories, gave them, a, like, gave them an arc, you know, and um, connected them all together. And then I found this really interesting narrative technique, which is um, because obviously some of my stories, they're all about different bands in different eras. So if you want to write a story about just pulp, you know, you kind of stop bringing them into different, you know, chapters. So what I would do is I'd write about pulp and then I'd move in, into the future with more of pulp and then I'd come back and start the next chapter as long as I started the next chapter chronologically after the last one had started not necessarily finished I could have this whole narrative you know thing that would work you know and then with an arc in, in between and that became and it really worked I think you know I think people if they've stuck out to write something they've got all these ideas and you, you think that they belong in a certain chapter or in a certain area, you can do that. You can move into the future. As long as you come back and you start the next chapter after the last one started, people get it. Yeah. And I think, so that's why the first one worked, hopefully. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the second, uh, the book that's due in, in April, um, which is Here They Come With Their Makeup On, which is your, I would say is a love letter to, Oh, everything about suede that you love and also just that whole era for them uh the turmoil and then them coming back with a vengeance with uh coming up um 
what was the what was the catalyst for that book because obviously you've had all the, all this experience and all these artists that you've spoken to and obviously something about suede really connected with you and and there's obviously an, an amazing story to tell here but was there something that really kicked this off and instigated this as well well I wasn't done with suede I knew, I knew that you know the first book I kind of there were a couple of chapters about stories with suede I had other stories about them that you know funny stories they're a very funny band you know you know they kind of like look kind of as if they were black and everything. But if you, when I used to hang around with them, they made me laugh so much. Their humour was self-deprecating, you know, it was, it was funny. And, you know, they had all these jokes about, you know, they'd signed so many copies of, of, uh, of photos that they would always try and find one that wasn't signed because it was worth more. You know, <laughs> they're in Joel, found one here. <laughs> and, you know, because it was all this, and all the stories of being on the road with them. So I thought, so was, I wasn't done with them. That was one of the reasons. And also, I think that one of the other catalysts was that um, I wanted to write a book about an album. And um, I thought that if I was going to write about an album, it had to be one that I loved and knew you know, intimately and um, could um, sort of dissect. And when you think of comebacks, you know, I just, everyone goes on about, you know, Man United in 99 or Liverpool in 2005. And this, but this comeback, which people probably won't remember, was, was way to you know, split up. Then half their songwriting partnership had left and people thought they were finished, completely over, because there was no way they'd write a single, a decent song ever again. So they put an advert in the Melody Maker and, a, and they got a, a tape in from a 17-year-old schoolboy who was a guitarist. And when the band played, you know, um, listened to the tape, it was incredible. So the manager rang the, the boy's parents in Bournemouth. He came to London. He joined the band within a week. He was on top of the pops within a week of joining. You know, that is... That is a baptism of fire. That's quite incredible. But yet they had to tour the old record, which they didn't care about anymore. They did a whole year on the on tour doing Dogman Star, which must have been, you know, horrible for them, really, before they... So, so the book starts at the Phoenix Festival when they're just done, they're totally done with this old record and the heavens are open, opening, you know, and that's when that kind of the book begins. And you were right there at the front of it, getting drowned. I was there. Yes, I was <laughs> soaking wet. Yeah, yeah. But you went to every. I mean, you were at every gig. I mean, you you were. Uh, you 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 say in the book that you, you used to stand at the front and used to come backstage and after yes. every gig and and you know you were as much as a, a fan as as someone they worked for or worked with. Yes, I know, and that's very, that's just quite unusual. I realised that you know it's possible that a lot of PRs these days don't microscopically or don't go home late at night and dance around in front of the mirror singing all the songs you know <laughs> which is what you do with the band you didn't look after but I know it, you know I did I had no um intentions of kidnapping the band or anything like that you know I started two things it was one was you know making bands you know famous because they deserve to be famous and the other one was really appreciating the music and I've always been a massive music fan my, my, my dad was a, a massive fan of big band music based believe it or not well before I was born in the 50s and his record, so his record collection, he was kind of like really um, sort of forthright about what he liked. I think I got my my kind of like, what's not, arrogance is the wrong word. I used to describe myself as a music taste evangelist, which I think sums it up. You know, if you like something, you tell your friends about it. Mm-hmm. That's probably what my dad was like, actually. You know, kind of, you really, you, you dismiss everything else. This is the reason that you should like this record. That's what you, you know, and then. So that's what I did with Suede. Before Suede, it was R.E.M. I, you know, I slept in a car for two weeks following R.E.M. round on tour. You know, I saw 100 gigs of theirs. So I've always been a massive fan of music. I think the thing about coming up, and I was a Suede fan, you know, 
pre and post Bernard, uh, Bernard Butler. But when when Richard Oakes came on board and he was the same age as me or more or less or slightly older, um, there felt like um, the, the connection grew, I think, because it felt like it was achievable. I was a young yeah. musician. And it was my dream to to write and be in these sort of bands and tour and live the lifestyle. And when you see someone of that age achieving that kind of that goal, even by accident in some ways, I guess he, you know, he was extremely lucky, but and obviously very talented. Um, I, mean, I think I think he I think he described it as um, being like on a roller coaster with your eyes shut, yeah. you know, um, and just. But that was probably because actually. I don't think his eyesight is very good. And he didn't wear contacts for the, for the first few <laughs> months. So put them, when he put them actually in, he could see this, you know, these crazy fans everywhere. But I think that's what it was like for him. I mean, the Bournemouth Echo, when he joined Swayze, they ran me up every day saying, what have you done with our child? You know, they, they thought he'd obviously been kidnapped from school by these London types, you know, who were covering him in drugs. <laughs> oh, there was, it would have been completely... Um... And I, well, such an eye opener for him to sort of come into that environment where, you know, the, your book opens with, you know, the Paris gigs and that kind of hedonistic lifestyle. And, um, you know, it's laid bare, but it must have been crazy for him. I mean, to take it all on board, but he did. He did and, he, and he did a fantastic job. And the writing really shone through on on coming up, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously for that first you know, it was it was probably nine months. He, I mean, he had to mine <clears throat> Bernard's guitar parts in a video and on top of the pops. That can't have been fun. And then he wrote two songs together and Bentswood Boys, which became B-sides of singles off Dogman Star. But it's obviously only when it got down to coming up that you could see all this tension. And then the template for the record was 10 hits or Michael Jackson's Thriller, you know, or, um, or as Matt said, you know, we want to write 10 Losing My Religions or something, which obviously yeah, yeah. is... A- ridiculous thing to say because the benchmark is too high but but there were five um top 10 singles off that record no indie band no indie band had ever done that you know the only band that ever done that is take that so but this while this was happening you know on the rails oasis had formed you know blur just released their most successful album was selling eighty thousand copies a week and pulp who people don't even consider who we looked after as well you know so they became the big three but suede weren't anywhere so the fact that the record sold a million and a half copies which was you know three times as much as the first two records yeah. was, in, was was not not a feasible prospect at the start of it do you remember the first time you heard the album in full or, or did you have because of the, just connections and what you're working with them were you listening to it as it was being sort of produced and recorded yeah i went to the studio a few times trash was the one though that was the um that was described as the final digit in a phone number you know because yeah. that was that was, that was the one that was the missing digit. You know, that was made it everything. Once you had that, you know, was, that was the promo for the album, really. You know, that was the, the teaser, as it were. And that was just so, such an incredible suede song as well, because obviously it's about, you know, the, it's about their fans. It's a song for their fans, about their fans. You know, it's about them being, you know, the litter on the breeze. Um, so I think that was probably the, the moment I knew it was going to work. But even then, on the eve of release, there were all these other rumours, because I think... Um, Dodgy had a single out, you know, and obviously Dodgy's got a very dodgy name, and you know, there's a bit more sort of, uh, I know, I, I think everyone was worried that that, that would eclipse Swade's, you know, entry into the charts, and thank God it didn't, because it, you know that that would have been terrible. Yeah. So, um, in in terms of your third book, then, and just to, if if we can get a preview on that, or at least an insight to where you're going with it, what else do you think you've mentioned at the start of the conversation, but 
for you and your career um what specifically aspects are you looking to explore in that one because it sounds fascinating okay well in the third one um i've already written um a long chapter called the worst movie i've never seen yeah which is when i looked after tank girl the movie yeah um and it was savage and best by this point were we had we were such a big sort of cool press company that i think jamie hewlett and um uh, Jamie Lit wanted us. He, he, Jamie drew Tank Girl for Deadline magazine, mm-hmm. and you know, MGM were bought. We bought the rights to the movie, so I had to go to MGM and meet everybody in this big, you know, re- um, film company. And then I had to go to, you know, the, the premiere in in America in LA, but also I had to see all the screenings as well. And the film wasn't very good to start with. Jamie had to um, actually draw cartoons in the middle to try and drag it back to the real audience because it wasn't working. Yeah, you know? and so there's all this stuff going on, and but I didn't really understand the protocol of um, film PR. So basically, because when I was in a meeting, they, they used to say, in fact, they do now, what, you, what, you know, what are you going to go for? And I used to just say, everything. And that, and that was, <laughs> there was no press plan. And obviously that worked because it meant every band I looked after were everywhere. But when it got to Tank Girl, I kind of promised L and Sky and, and Dazed and Infused and ID and all these, I promised more exclusive covers, you know. And uh, of course, every every single magazine, Blitz, they all put them on the cover with eight pages. And then they all rang up and said, "What the fuck are you playing at?" You know, <laughs> like, you know. And I said, "Well, I'm exclusive to you," <laughs> which is you know, which is a, you know, a great you know, and backup. But so it's all about that the craziness of looking after a film when I didn't deserve to be doing a film because. And also, and things, and then Courtney Love ringing the office in the middle of the night. She was desperate for Savage Best to do, and just saying how much she hated us. She left a long rambling message because uh, we didn't do her press. She was doing, she was doing the soundtrack to, to Tank Girl, you see. Yeah, yeah. And the, the, the reason it's called The Worst Movie I've Never Seen is because I knew the minute I saw that movie, I wasn't going to like it because I liked the cartoon. I liked Jamie. I liked the vibe of Tank Girl. I loved Tank Girl. She was a hero to me. But I knew the film wouldn't be very good. So... I kind of avoided, so all the, I went to all the screenings and just as the lights went down, I left and, and walked out the back and then saw people in the foyer. And so I never actually, so I refused to see the film 20 times. They, you know, the lights would go down and sort of away. <laughs> sneak off. So, that's quite, so it's called The Worst Movie I've Never Seen. And it's all the story of Tank Girl and the, you know, and the premieres all over the world. And that's so, again, it's stories, just like in the first and second books of, you know, like there's a George Michael story in the, in the new book, which is, very vaguely about suede, you know, and but it's mainly about George and his, you know, and Brad Branson, who, um, you know, who was suede's photographer around that time. And George, Brad, George was in love with Brad, and I met George a few times. Mm. But it's connected, so you know. And then there's also a story which I alluded to at the start of this talk, which was um about going to the House of Commons. So I've, there's a chapter called the House of Common People. You'll be pleased mm-hmm. to know. So obviously, you see what they did there. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, and then there's you know, so there's you know, there's again about 12 stories in the third book. And then what I'm going to start saying is I've done with the 90s. There's a whole new century to explore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's been such a fascinating career. And I guess this is something that, um, you know, ha- having lived and breathed it and, and followed these bands religiously, um, to speak to somebody who has such a great connection with them has been absolutely fascinating, Jane. Um, I was just thinking, what's the, I mean, what is the future? I mean, do, I know obviously you're working, but writing and novels and this sort of thing would this be something you would just love to pursue as well as everything else yes i mean obviously once i mean i 
I mean, this one comes out, hopefully this, this new book will be a success. And, and then if the third one comes out next year, as I say, that's the 90s done. I have got various other, I've got, um, you know, a novel, which I'm, I'm sort of, I've had a story, an idea for, for a while about, you know, people's home, you know, possibly with Britpop people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All hanging out in an old people's home. Yes, yeah. Which I, you know, I can just imagine Liam and Novels feuding elderly brothers. So I would love that. You know, and the walk, the walk with a, with a cane would be great, wouldn't it? You know? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yes, I think writing, you know, I do I do PR still because, as my dad used to say, it gets the washing up done um, and philosophy doesn't. Uh, but, I'll, you know, by, by writing, I'd like to think writing is my career now. Yeah. Well, Jane, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you about it. This, this new book, uh, here they come with their makeup on what's the release date of this one april 12th thank you so much for talking to me it's been an absolute pleasure really interesting oh it's been great to chat to you too take care